You're listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast, an exploration of thoughts and ideas from the founder and CEO of Wolfram Research, creator of Wolfram Alpha and the Wolfram Language. In this ongoing Q&A series, Stephen answers questions from his live stream audience about science and technology. This episode features discussions of how windmills work, why space is so big, how planets are formed, and other topics in physics and astronomy. Let's have a listen. Okay, so there's a question about watching the movie Boy Who Harnessed the Wind, which I have not watched. Uh, kids wondering how windmills actually work and generate energy. Okay, all right, good question. Um, okay, let's see what the easiest way to explain this is. Um, so, uh, what's kind of happening in a windmill is the reverse of what's happening in an electric car. So an electric car, what you're doing is you're turning electrical and turning uh, energy from a battery, electrical energy into mechanical motion, turning the wheels of the car around. And it just so happens the way physics is set up, most effects like that, if you can go from electricity to motion, it turns out it's sort of a basic fact of physics that you can reverse things like that. And you can say, let's go from motion to electricity. And that's essentially what's happening in a windmill is that you're running kind of electric motor in reverse. The wind is, uh, is turning the sails of the, 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 the blades of the windmill and, um, uh, and that's, uh, that's running the, um, uh, it's kind of like running the electric car in reverse to go from, from mechanical motion to electrical energy. Now, if you ask, how does the, how does the windmill work? Why, does the, why do the blades of the windmill turn around? Uh, they actually turn around for they're kind of doing the reverse of what the propeller of an airplane would do. So the propeller of an airplane, each, each, um, each propeller blade is shaped so that it will try and push air from the engine of the plane is making the propeller go around and the propeller blade is shaped so that it will push air backwards. And when the, when the air is pushed backwards, that will cause the airplane to go forwards. That's a, another one of these sort of uh, physics principles that um, if you, uh, uh, sort of push momentum backwards, it will make you go forwards. Um, so the, the um, so sort of the idea is uh, the, the windmill is kind of like the propeller of a, of a plane working backwards. In that case, the wind is blowing across the propeller, which is causing, or the, the, um, uh, the blades of the windmill causing them to turn. And then that's um, causing uh, the sort of reverse uh, electric car to work and making energy. Now, if you ask me why, um, why is it the case that um, uh, when you, how, how does it actually work to get electric, how does an electric motor work, for example? Um, okay, that's a little bit tricky. It's a little tricky. And it has to do with um, uh, features about magnetism and electricity. Um, uh, let me, let me, I, I would be, if people are interested, I can try and tackle that one. It's a little bit non-trivial because it, um, uh, I mean, I can just sort of tell you facts about how electricity and magnetism work, um, but it's more fun if one can explain why those facts are true. And there's a bit of a stack of physics that you have to explain to explain why those things are true. It all has to do with a thing called electromagnetic induction, um, which is a phenomenon that, um, uh, well, okay. So people know about magnets, right? You've seen magnets. Um, how do magnets work? Well, magnets, a typical magnet is made of iron. And um, what happens is inside, uh, so, so a magnet works, 
uh, gosh, we have to go a couple of levels here. The magnet works because each little uh, iron atom inside the magnet is acting like its own little tiny magnet. But the question is, how do those things act like tiny magnets? How do you get, how do you get a magnetic field magnetism from anything else? Well, it turns out that when you have uh, an electric current, when you have electricity flowing, electricity flowing produces a magnetic field. Um, and uh, what is electricity? Electricity is a flow of electrons. So electrons are these little tiny particles that exist in every atom, but in a, uh, in a metal, in, which is like a, a, a thing, like a wire that conducts electricity, it turns out that some of the, the electrons, usually electrons are stuck inside atoms. There's a nucleus of an atom with protons and neutrons. There's a sort of electrons going around outside the nucleus. Um, and usually the electrons are just sort of stuck inside the atom. But in a metal, something special happens. There end up being electrons that are not stuck inside atoms. There end up being electrons that are delocalized, that can sort of uh, move through the metal. And so when you have an electric current, what's happening is that electrons, these uh, uh, delocalized electrons, are able to move through the metal. And, that's, uh, and the electrons, each electron carries a little tiny amount of electric charge. And as those electrons move through the metal, they are producing an electric current. And one of the facts about physics is that when you have an electric current, when you have a moving electron, it produces a magnetic field. Um, so one of the things that you can do is you can have electrons that are moving in a circle. You can have an electric current that's just going around in a circle. So there are these things called solenoids, which are just sort of loops of wire that are turned around many times. Um, a, a, a solenoid with a bunch of loops of wire, the electrons are just going around and around and around these loops of wire, um, and they're producing a magnetic field. And the way it works is a little bit complicated. The, um, the magnetic field is at right angles to the direction of the, of the motion of the electrons. And so when you think through the geometry, it means that in this loop of wire, there's a magnetic field that is pointing right out of the loop of wire. So the loop's going around this way, the, the magnetic field is pointing that way. So when you, um, uh, what's actually happening inside the iron um, is roughly, 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 I'm cheating a little bit, but roughly the electrons inside the iron atom are kind of going around their nuclei and they're kind of being like tiny versions of those loops of wire, those electrons going around loops of wire and they're making a, making a magnetic field. And that's what the individual little magnets that make up the magnetic field from a block of iron, that's what they come from. Okay, so given this fact that um, a, uh, uh, an electron that's moving produces a magnetic field. Um, it, uh, uh, and another fact is that a magnetic field makes an electron move. When you sort of combine those facts together um, and use a bit of kind of engineering cleverness, you can make that turn into how an electric motor works. Okay, so there's a question here, why can't we see all light? Okay, let's, let me try tackling that. So, so okay, so uh, light, um, uh, we, our eyes, sense light. Um, there are, what is light? Well, there are a couple of different ways to think about it. Um, one way to think about it is it's a bunch of photons, little particles of light, just like electrons are particles of electricity, photons are particles of light. That's kind of one way to think about light. Another way to think about light is it's an electromagnetic wave. 
We talked a little bit before for people who were there when I was talking about electric motors and things, we talked about how electricity and magnetism are things that are involved in electric motors. Here's a, here's a weird fact for you. If, if, you, um, if you take uh, an electric charge, like an electron, and you wave it around, you wave it up and down, the, um, uh, that waving of the charge up and down will produce an electromagnetic wave. So it's just like if you take a piece of string and you wiggle the end of the piece of string, the piece of string will, you'll see this kind of wave going down the piece of string. Well, in the case of electricity and magnetism, if you take an electron, which is, has an electric charge, and you wiggle it around, it will produce an electromagnetic wave. And that, um, so you might say, well, what's that electromagnetic wave? Like, what's it a wave in? You know, the wave on the piece of string is a, is a wave in the string. People were very confused about that 120 years ago. They thought there was this thing called the ether, which was the thing in which electromagnetic waves exist. And turned out that wasn't quite right. Although actually, when we learn about this new things I figured out in fundamental physics, they were actually righter than they might have thought they were. But, but let's not, let's put that aside. But so electromagnetic waves are waves that just propagate in the vacuum. And, and so when you wiggle an electron around, when you wiggle an electric charge around, it will produce an electromagnetic wave. That electromagnetic wave, depending on how fast you wiggle the electron, you'll get a different frequency of wave. So some frequencies of waves are, make radio waves. And so when you, if anybody still ever does this, if you tune into a radio station, it'll say, you know, this is 99.7 megahertz or something. And it will, um, and that means that the, um, the electrons in the antenna that make the radio wave, that is the radio wave associated with that uh, radio station, they're being wiggled up and down 99.7 million times per second. And that's, um, that's what produces an electromagnetic wave of that frequency. So one version of, uh, uh, of an electromagnetic wave is what you get by wiggling things, let's say, um, uh, at that frequency. If you wiggle things even faster, you get different kinds of things produced. So if you wiggle things uh, a trillion times a second, if you wiggle the, the, um, uh, the, the charge a trillion times a second, you don't get a radio wave, you get light. Um, because light is an electromagnetic wave that has a higher frequency. So the, the sequence is, the lowest frequency is, is uh, radio waves and um, uh, different kinds of radio waves. And then you get to higher frequencies, you eventually get to infrared. Uh, infrared, among other things, is um, uh, what heat, uh, radiant heat is. And then when you go even, uh, when you go even faster, even higher frequency, you get to visible light. After that, you get to ultraviolet. Uh, after ultraviolet, you get to X-rays. Then you get to gamma rays. Um, so that's one view of things: is, is as these waves. The other view is as photons, um, and uh, each. Um, uh, you can think of this as kind of um, in quantum mechanics. Uh, actually, I have recently figured out a great deal about how this really works. And it's been sort of confusing for the last hundred years. And I think, uh, I think it is now much less confusing, but that is a different topic. But um, in any case, the um, photons are uh, a different view of electromagnetic uh, stuff. It's the little particles of electromagnetic uh, um, activity um, and you can think about light as being a stream of photons or an electromagnetic wave. You can think about x-rays as being a stream of light, uh, a, a, a stream of, of photons, higher energy photons. Um, 
as, as you go to higher frequencies from radio waves to infrared to visible light to ultraviolet to X-rays, um, that's a higher frequency. You're wiggling the electrons faster and faster to make the, the waves. Um, that also corresponds to higher energies of photons. So by the time you get to, um, uh, well, to things like gamma rays, you can have individual photons that each pack a large amount of energy. Um, the, uh, so, okay. So then the question is, why can't we see other forms of light? Well, so other forms of light, um, the visible light is a particular range of frequencies, a particular range of, um, uh, uh, it's also a particular range of wavelengths. Um, when you think about the string, you're wiggling the string, you see these waves and the waves have a certain uh, um, uh, wavelength, they, the wiggles have a certain, uh, certain uh, uh, length to them. Um, that's the so-called wavelength. The relationship between the frequency you wiggle at and the wavelength is determined by the speed of the waves. In the case of light, it's the speed of light. Um, so in any case, the, for, for light, the, um, uh, the wiggles, the wavelength, uh, so typical light, well, let's see, red light is 500 nanometers. Um, so that's some uh, um, uh, let's see, 10 to the minus, um, um, so that's half a, um, all right, half a micron. Yeah, so half a millionth of a meter um, is the wavelength of, um, uh, uh, so, so different colors of light correspond to slightly different wavelengths, slightly different frequencies, slightly different energies of photons. It's actually the light that we, that our eyes see, have a fairly narrow range of frequencies. Um, okay, so, so um, how does that work? Well, the, the frequencies that we are kind of tuned to be able to see with our eyes pretty much correspond to the frequencies that the sun produces in light. And what, uh, here's another fact about, um, uh, about sort of physics. If you heat something up, it will uh, gradually start um, radiating photons, radiating electromagnetic radiation. And you can think about that a little bit as, as you heat it up, the electrons are wiggling around faster and faster, and they're making, um, and they're doing what I was describing earlier, happens in a, in a radio antenna, for example, they're producing electromagnetic waves, and as you wiggle them around faster and faster, by heating the thing up more and more, they generate higher and higher frequency electromagnetic waves. So um, in, uh, for visible light, the lowest frequency electromagnetic waves are red ones, and what happens is, and so that's why when you heat something up, it eventually it first gets red hot, as you can see, um, uh, because it's just about making visible light, but it's only making red visible light. If you heat it up more than that, well, I, I should say, first of all, that the sequence is, it's like across a rainbow. Um, the sequence goes from red um, through to blue. So red is the, is the, um, uh, um, the longest wavelength, the lowest energy, the lowest frequency of light that we can see. Blue is the highest frequency, uh, shortest wavelength, highest energy that we can see. And so as you heat something up, at first it doesn't produce any visible light at all. Eventually it just is, is the, the, the light that it, the, the, the electromagnetic radiation it's producing just about pokes into the visible and you can see a little bit of red light. When we heat it up more, it gets into kind of the, to the point where it's, uh, it's producing light of pretty much all frequencies that we can see and that's and that so it looks white hot, um, and so that's uh, 
uh, that's around 6,000 degrees, I think. Um, uh, when things are 6,000 degrees centigrade, I think roughly, um, you'll see something where it's, it's roughly white hot um, and uh, uh, produces all of the frequencies that correspond to visible light. If you make it even hotter, it's um, most of the uh, electromagnetic radiation it's producing is higher energy, higher frequency than, uh, uh, than corresponds to visible light. And you'll, the last thing you'll see is it'll look blue because it's going off into the ultraviolet and so on, and it'll be blue hot. So actually, if you're, if you're interested in stars, um, our sun is a star that is basically a white star. It's producing light that goes across all the frequencies in our visible light spectrum. There are stars, uh, some very small stars and some very big stars that are red hot, that, have a, um, that produce light that are colder than the sun and, um, produce, uh, uh, and so produce um, light that is more on the red side. There are also stars that are, that are bluish that are higher temperature than the sun. But because our sun happens, its surface happens to be at about 6,000 degrees, um, that's, uh, that produces uh, electromagnetic radiation that corresponds to this particular range of frequencies that is our white light. So that's, that's how the light is produced. Now, how do we see it? The way we see it is with our eyes and with, uh, on our retina at the back of our eyes. So light goes into our eye and then um, every, every piece of light, think about it as an electromagnetic wave, think about it as a photon, let's think about it as a photon. Every time when, when we, see, um, we see light, what's happening is a stream of photons are entering our eyes and those photons hit the back of our eye and they hit uh, the, um, uh, the, the, our retina. And on our retina, there's a particular molecule that has the feature that when it absorbs a photon of light, it produces a little electrical pulse. And that electrical pulse is transmitted to our optic nerve and uh, the optic nerve then electrically transmits that to our visual cortex at the back of our brain, it's kind of a piece of bad design that the visual processing part of human brains is at the back, even though the eyes are at the front. So that means our optic nerves have to go all the way through our, through our brains to get to the back um, where we can actually do the processing. But the way it works is every photon that hits one of these molecules in the, in the, on our retina causes it to produce a little electrical pulse. And um, uh, the way it works is that we actually have four kinds of molecules on, in, in our eyes that um, uh, two kinds of cells, our rod cells and our cone cells, um, our rod cells are sensitive to essentially light intensity, sort of see in black and white, and our cone cells are sensitive to color. We have three kinds of cone cells, red, green, roughly red, green, and blue cone cells that are sensitive to roughly red, green, and blue uh, uh, photons that are in the red, green, and blue parts of the spectrum. So when we, when we see light, What's happening is that a photon is going into our eye, it's hitting one of these cells on our retina, that's causing a little electrical pulse that is going into our brains, and then we start synthesizing the image through our visual cortex at the back of our brain. Now, uh, it's sort of interesting that um, uh, we can, um, it's sort of one photon per pulse. So you might ask, well, how many photons do you need to actually see anything? I think the answer is about a thousand photons. You'll, you'll start seeing stuff. I think that there are, um, some of the, the um, I think king crabs are sort of the winners, and I think they can see individual photons. And actually they, you know, the, the eye that humans, uh, the type that we have, a compound eye, the, the type that we have, which has a lens and a retina and so on, 
I think that's evolved like three times in the, in the history of life on Earth. And, and we got one of the versions that's a little bit goofy because we have a bunch of essentially image processing circuitry that is in front of where our, where our retina senses light, which seems like bad design. I think the crabs got it the other way around. Um, but uh, in any case, the, um, so the, the answer to why we don't see, why we only see certain kinds of light um, is that the, uh, those molecules in our retina are kind of tuned to deal with only photons that the way they, they work, they, um, oh boy, I can explain that too, but, but um, uh, the, the way those molecules work, they, if they absorb a photon of a certain frequency, then they produce this electrical pulse and it only works with photons of that frequency. So actually the way that like this webcam that's looking at me right now works, it has a CCD camera um, that actually works pretty similar to the way a human eye works. Um, it, when a photon uh, hits a little, little thing there, instead of it being a piece of um, uh, a protein that um, uh, is the molecule, it's a, it's a piece of a semiconductor and it causes essentially an electron to get, um, uh, uh, to get sort of emitted in the semiconductor and that's the little electrical pulse that corresponds to one pixel of, of what the camera sees. I see a question from a Henry. Why does space never end? Okay, good question. Complicated question. Okay, let me give you an example um, that doesn't really apply to us, but um, uh, let's imagine that you were an ant uh, who just lived on a, on a table, flat table. And all you know is you're an ant walking around on this table. You never get to climb up anything. You just get, you're just on this table. And the ant can go, it goes, it goes, it goes along. And eventually, oops, it reaches the edge of the table. Okay, its space has kind of ended there. It's reached the edge of the table. But now imagine that your ant was living on a sphere, maybe living on a little tiny asteroid. That was, um, so the ant is, is crawling around, and it's crawling around on the sphere, and the ant is like the ant crawling around on the table. It's just moving on this, on this thing that is just two-dimensional. It's, it's just on the surface, and it's crawling around, it's crawling around. It's like, am I ever gonna reach the edge? Oh, I've got a theory. You know, there's an edge to space, but I just keep crawling, and I keep crawling, but I can, as I go on the sphere, I never reach the edge. Instead, what happens is I come back to the beginning again. So that's kind of how, in a sense, how you might imagine that um, you could end up with something like space that doesn't have an end, is that you could have something where, as you sort of crawl around it, um, you, uh, uh, you just come back to where you started from. Now, in our space, we're not, we're not living in this kind of plane, in this two-dimensional thing. We're living in three dimensions of space. Um, but you could actually have something in principle you can have something where our three dimensionals of space are all curled around and they come back and they, they come back like a torus, like a donut. Um, they um, uh, accept a donut where it's a three dimensional donut, so to speak, or a, 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 actually it's a bad example. I, I really should be talking about kind of a, a, uh, um, a, 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 an analog of my sphere where instead of having a two dimensional surface, I have a three dimensional surface on a four dimensional sphere on a sphere in four dimensions. It's a little hard to visualize. But okay, so what happens in our actual universe? Is that how our actual universe works? We don't know for sure, but it's probably not how our actual universe works. 
Instead, one of the things that happens in our actual universe is imagine that we were going to go visit the outer reaches of our universe. We have a spacecraft, we're going, we're going along, and uh, you may know that the universe is expanding. So the universe expands, and so uh, you know, it started about uh, 14 billion, 15 billion years ago, now started very small, and um, for reasons that we don't understand, although this theory of mine now has some beginnings of an understanding of that, um, the universe just had this big bang event and just started expanding. And um, it started expanding, actually it expanded really fast probably at first. It expanded almost paradoxically, it expanded faster than the speed of light. The current favorite theory for the initial expansion of the universe involves uh, early expansion that was faster than the speed of light. Um, and um, although no, no signals inside the universe travel faster than the speed of light, the actual edges of the universe effectively travel faster than the speed of light. But anyway, the universe is traveling outwards and it's expanding, it's expanding, it's expanding. Okay, so let's imagine we want to reach the edge of the universe, so to speak. Well, the problem is that um, in our spacecraft, we're going out to the edge of the universe but as we go out towards the edge of the universe, the universe is expanding. And so in a sense, by the time we would have reached, because the universe is expanding, well, roughly at the speed of light, um, and our spacecraft can't go that fast, um, by the time we would have gotten to the edge of the universe, um, the universe would have already expanded away from us. Now, I'm, I'm cheating a bit in that explanation for people who are um, really understanding this is a little tricky. And um, the best way to do it is by drawing diagrams in which you look at, in space versus time, uh, you look at essentially the, the set of, uh, of how, how it, one effect in the universe can cause another effect in the universe. But roughly, uh, roughly these, these two things sort of on the one side, the, the kind of you keep going around the sphere, you'll never reach the edge. And the other, if the thing is expanding, um, you, uh, it's by the time you would have gotten to where it got to, um, it would have already expanded further. Between those two things, I'm giving you a, a reasonable approximation to what one actually knows from the physics of what goes on. This question here, how did the Earth evolve? Okay, I can try taking that one. Um, uh, okay, so back, so first question is how did the sun evolve? And even how did the galaxy evolve? Okay, so back in the very early universe, the, the universe started from this big bang, this very small clump of, of, uh, of stuff is very hot, kind of explodes out in this, in this giant expansion that has been going on ever since. As the universe cooled down, as it expanded, slowly lumps of, of stuff um, started to, so uh, started to form um, as a result of gravity. So gravity pulls things together, just like it, it pulls, you know, it, it, if you um, throw something up, the, the gravity associated with the earth will pull it back down again. Gravity is what um, uh, pulls the earth towards the sun and keeps it in its orbit. Anytime something has mass, you can see that something has mass by the fact that it has inertia, you need to put a force, you need to push it with a force in order to get it to start to move. One of, the, one of the fascinating facts in science is that the mass associated with inertia is the same as the mass associated with generating gravity. 
but whenever something has a mass, it will produce some gravity. So, so like we have a mass, if, um, uh, if we were out in space and everything else was, um, we, we didn't have anything else um, going on, we would produce a certain amount of gravity and we would attract things to us just through the force of, of gravity. So anything with mass produces gravity and things that have mass and, and things that, and gravity will pull things together. So in the very early universe, um, the uh, uh, things started clumping together and you started getting um, kind of uh, uh, lumps of mass. People don't actually know exactly how that worked. Um, if the universe started really, really, really uniform, it's very hard to see whoever gets to make the clump first. It's really, it's like the universe was perfectly smooth, perfectly, um, it's like, where would the thing ever clump up? Because it's all smooth, so why would it ever make a clump? People don't know the answer to that. Actually, this physics work that I've been doing recently provides a new answer to that question of how the early uh, fancy words, density perturbations occurred in the universe. Um, but in any case, so what, what started to happen was in the very early universe, within, I don't know, the first, well, by the time 100,000 years after the beginning of the universe, there were already clumps that were forming in the universe, already places where there were higher densities of gas than other places. Okay, so as uh, the force of gravity makes those clumps get more and more clumpy, and as those clumps got more and more and more clumpy, eventually they started to form into galaxies. And um, the, the galaxies, there are now about uh, 100 billion galaxies in our, in our universe, um, and uh, those formed um, uh, fairly early in the history of the universe, uh, some later than others. Um, within those galaxies, the, the galaxies, so they have different kinds of galaxies, but like our galaxy is a spiral galaxy that's spinning around. Um, but uh, you form this, this, all this gas in the, in the galaxy, and it, it slowly starts to form also into stars, again, because of gravity. And in our, in our galaxy, which is a pretty large galaxy, we have 100 billion stars. And each one of those came by, by um, gas that was being attracted by gravity, forming together. And eventually, it gets to the point where it's like being pulled, pulled, pulled together. And eventually, it, it forms this, this area that's a big lump of higher density gas. OK, so what happens when this big lump of higher density gas? Eventually, it uh, lights up as a star. And um, in fact, in general, it's true that when you have a big lump of, if you have enough stuff together, the force of gravity is strong enough that it will cause the um, atoms in, in the material to get uh, so close, the nuclei of the atoms get so close that they fuse together um, and uh, that produces a large amount of energy. It's the same phenomenon actually that happens in hydrogen bombs, um, also happens inside stars that, um, but basically, whenever the force of gravity is strong enough, it will make the um, uh, hydrogen gas, for example, um, will push the hydrogen gas together with such uh, uh, force at such high pressure that eventually the nuclei of the hydrogen atoms fuses together, produces a whole bunch of energy, and that's what produces light from stars. Well, when, when the stars were forming, um, typically what was happening was the stars were forming and they were spinning around a bit and they would have this kind of disk of stuff that was spinning around with them. And what happens is just like the galaxies form, a clump, things get clumpier and clumpier as a result of, uh, of, of gravity. The stars form, things get clumpier and clumpier. Similarly, in this kind of disk of, uh, of stuff around uh, the region where the star is forming, that disk 
also gets clumpier and clumpier and eventually forms into planets. And, and it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's kind of a little fluffy, you know, fluffy things that form at first for planets. And planets would crash into each other and they would, um, and other ones would come out and, and they would be, you know, two planets that are about the same size would be attracted by gravity and they'd crash into each other, they'd form one planet and so on and so on and so on. Um, and that, that gradually happened. And as that happened, eventually things cool down and um, the things that are small turn into planets. If they were much bigger, they would turn into stars. Like Jupiter is a big planet, but too small to be a star, but big on, uh, fairly big on the size of planets. Um, now, what happened, uh, for example, the Earth, um, the Earth is kind of weird. But so so it's this, this thing about sort of disks of stuff accreting and forming things, it happens yet again. There are moons around planets, same phenomenon again. So around stars, there are planets, around planets, there are moons. One of the things that you might ask is, are there, uh, are there moon moons? Are there moons around moons? Um, and in a sense, if we put an artificial satellite around our moon, um, we would have a moon around a moon. Actually, it's a tricky thing in mathematics of, of gravity and things. Actually, it's actually pretty hard to have moon moons because um, it turns out that um, uh, as, the, as the moons orbit in their orbits, they will tend to put forces on the moon moons that will make the moon moons tend to tend to be pulled out of their orbits. So, so actually, moon moons are rare. You can have stars to planets to moons, but few moon moons. And I don't think there are any known in our solar system yet. Um, but um, in any case, the um, uh, the thing that um, uh, that happens. So, in in our solar system, um, like our moon is very big compared to Earth as a planet, compared to most moons. Most moons of planets are really small compared to their planets. Um, and our moon, there's been a big question. How did the moon form? When I was a kid, people sometimes said, oh, the moon formed out of a sort of scar on the Earth left by the Pacific Ocean. That turns out not to be true. But um, there, are, there are sort of theories. I think the current favorite theory is this big splat theory that says that there were two things of roughly equal size and they collided and they formed into, um, and, and in the early Earth, there was a a sort of a, a big piece that formed, actually the moon, the one thing we know about the moon is the earth is comparatively uniform. The moon is very lumpy. The moon is like not really, if you looked inside the moon, it's got different stuff on one side compared to the other. And we know that because when satellites orbit the moon, they don't, they don't follow quite the same sort of orbits that you would expect if the moon was more or less uniform. They, they, have, uh, they kind of wiggle in their orbits in a certain way. So, so roughly the answer is, you know, the Earth formed by, um, comes, okay, there's, there's another tricky thing. So in the original, in the early universe, there were protons, neutrons, electrons, but there weren't any elements other than hydrogen, basically. Uh, there was only hydrogen gas, which is the first element, the element that has a single proton, and um, in, its, in its simplest form, a hydrogen atom is just a single proton and a single electron. So the question is, how did the heavier elements form? And the answer is they formed in stars. And um, because in our sun, our sun is turning lots of hydrogen into helium by fusing together hydrogen uh, nuclei, hydrogen atoms to make helium. And then that keeps going and hydrogen turns into helium. Stars burn helium, so to speak. No, it's not burning in the same sense as in a fire. It's, um, it's this fusing of atoms by nuclear fusion um, and helium turns into lithium and beryllium and the heavier elements. But actually, it turns out in an ordinary star, you never get beyond, beyond iron. It turns out the way the elements work, iron is, which number element is it? I don't know. 
the isotope of iron, which is the count of the total number of protons and the number of neutrons in the nucleus. Iron 56 is the, is the sort of bottom of the well. It's the thing that is, um, that if sort of all else is equal, um, it's, the, it's, the most, um, uh, it's the most tightly bound, well, no, it's the, it's, the, it's the nucleus that's sort of the most favored in terms of, of energy um, for one to end up in. So what happens in stars is they slowly, I mean, our sun is mostly turning hydrogen into helium, but as stars get older, they, they tend to turn more, uh, they make heavier and heavier elements. Now, of course, in us, you know, what are we made of? Well, we're mostly water, which is, you know, hydrogen and oxygen, and we're a bunch of carbon. Um, you know, if we look at the Earth, the most common elements in the Earth's crust are silicon and aluminum, um, aluminum um, and uh, uh, so those are somewhat heavier elements. So how did those get made? Well, our sun isn't right now making those elements, not in substantial numbers. Um, so how did those get made? Well, the answer is when stars get older, some stars, it won't happen to our sun, but it happens to stars bigger than our sun. Um, as the star has finished going through all its hydrogen, it will slowly, it will start to, um, the, the star will typically swell up. And then as it, as it goes through its sort of fuel, eventually it comes to this point where the star will start to collapse. And what can happen is at a, at a sort of critical, um, a critical moment, the star will collapse very rapidly. And uh, as it collapses, it will push together nuclei of heavier and heavier elements. And eventually it will push things together so much that things like oxygen and silicon and heavier elements like that start to undergo nuclear fusion. And that produces a huge amount of energy. And so what happens to the star? The star explodes in a supernova and it releases a huge amount of energy. And supernovas happen probably in our galaxy about once every thousand years. Um, we lost, saw one, our civilization lost, saw one in 1054 AD, um, made the Crab Nebula. Um, and it's, uh, it, was, it was kind of spectacular, I think. I mean, I think it was a, a little dot of light, a little, little piece, a little star that made things bright at night. So it was so bright that um, uh, from that supernova, that's a, a long way away, I think it's a thousand light years away, maybe? Not sure. Um, the, um, that uh, even at that distance, uh, the supernova is, is releasing so much energy, it makes the, the sky bright just from this one point of light. Uh, there are supernovas happening in other galaxies that we can see kind of all the time, um, but in our galaxy, they don't happen. They probably happen once every thousand years, at least that we can see them. Maybe it's a little bit more frequent than that um, if they're closer to the plane of the galaxy, which tends to be hidden by dust. Um, but in any case, the, the, um, so in these supernovas, so in a, in a big star, when it, when it undergoes this, this rapid contraction, it, um, it explodes and produces all this energy. And in that explosion, uh, heavy elements are produced. And so something like gold is produced in a supernova explosion. There's actually one other process in, in Okay, fancy words, there's this thing called R process and S process nucleosynthesis, which are two different processes for making, uh, making elements in stars. But the one I'm describing is the, is the case in supernovas, which is, which is a common case. Um, and so all the heavy elements like gold or, or even like, um, like iron, like, um, uh, well, like, like all, all, of, all of the elements beyond iron were basically made in supernovas. So when we, like on the earth, if we look at, um, you know, when we go mining on the Earth, we'll find all kinds of elements. Like um, if we pick up a, a thing in the Earth's crust, you know, most of the time a rock is made of uh, silicates, silicon and aluminum and things. Um, about, um, uh, on average, if we look at atoms in the Earth's crust, 
on average one in every 10 billion atoms is a gold atom. And every one of those gold atoms basically came from a supernova that happened sometime earlier in the history of our galaxy. And so if you ask, where did the Earth come from? Well, all of the, all of the sort of heavier elements in the Earth were sort of the result of earlier supernovas that happened. Earlier stars kind of died to make um, what turned into things that are in our sun um, and in the Earth and so on. Okay, question here is, what is heat? Okay, boy, lots of physics questions. All right, let me explain what heat is. Um, so, uh, you have any material, um, any ordinary material is made of atoms, molecules that are made of atoms. Um, the only things that aren't made of atoms are things like light that are made of photons, which are a different kind of particle, but atoms which have protons and neutrons and electrons and so on in them, those are, um, you know, ordinary things are made of those. And so anything we have, you know, some thing of water or something, it's all a bunch of atoms. And it's a lot of atoms. So in this, um, in this thing of water, there will be, oh, let's see, can I do the math quickly enough? Maybe a billion, trillion, trillion atoms in this, in this uh, water bottle. Um, so there are a lot of atoms. Um, but, uh, uh, and those atoms are all uh, kind of bouncing around and uh, they're hitting each other, they're bouncing off, they're hitting other atoms and so on. Um, now, Sometimes atoms can be arranged very regularly. So when you have a crystal, like a, a diamond or a quartz crystal or something like this, um, there the atoms are arranged in a very regular way. In fact, in any solid, the atoms are arranged so that they're all kind of standing still. Not quite, but roughly all the atoms are kind of standing still. If you, in a liquid, the atoms are running around a bit more. In a gas, the atoms are running around all over the place. And the fact that we can, like if we, if we have a solid thing, we push the solid thing, we can't go through it. That's because there are a bunch of atoms there and they're not moving out of the way. In the case of a gas, the atoms are running around all over the place all the time. And so it's easy for us to sort of push our way through the gas because the atoms get out of the way because they're, they're moving around all the time. Okay, what makes atoms move around? What makes atoms move around is heat. And that's what heat, heat is. Heat is the average motion of atoms. So when we say, what's the temperature of that thing? What we're doing is we're actually measuring the average energy, the average, actually even the average speed of those molecules running around. And so when we, um, when we're, uh, when we say, when we measure something with a thermometer, what's happening is that that thermometer is effectively measuring well, it's basically the average energy of molecules running around inside our, I'm pointing to my mouth when I'm talking about thermometers, but, but if it was a thermometer for human temperature, it would be um, uh, measuring, um, uh, measuring the rate at which molecules are bouncing around inside uh, my mouth, and that causes the molecules inside the, the thermometer to bounce around at kind of the same, with the same energy, the same, not quite the same speed because they're different molecules, but, but roughly the same speed. Um, and uh, that causes, um, uh, that, that causes the, um, uh, and that's what we then record as, as, um, as temperature because um, uh, what's happening in a thermometer, in a modern thermometer, what's happening is um, as those atoms are moving around, they're causing, they're kicking electrons um, uh, out of where they would otherwise be in a semiconductor, and they're cause, 
I think that's how thermometers are working these days. Yeah, they're probably working using the thermoelectric effect, um, which is basically uh, heat. Heat is kind of kicking electrons and causing them to make electric currents. But so what is heat? Heat is the average motion of atoms. So it's, it's the, as you make things hotter, the atoms are moving around faster. And when things are really cold, the, the force of attraction between atoms will just hold the atoms in place and you make a solid. As the, you make the atoms hotter, eventually the force of attraction between atoms is not sufficient to overcome the kind of the, the heat that's making the atoms run around. You get a liquid, you heat it up even further, you get a gas because the atoms are moving around really fast. And so one question you might ask is, um, is there, uh, is there a, you know, what happens when the atoms go slower and slower and slower and slower and slower? You might say there must be a minimum temperature because there must be a point at which the atoms are just standing still. There's no more, you can't take any more energy out of the atoms. They don't have any energy at all. They're just standing still. And that's actually true. There's a thing called the absolute zero of temperature minus 273.16 degrees centigrade is the absolute zero of temperature. And you can't make, there is no, there's no meaning to temperature below that because that's the temperature at which there's no running around energy on the part of the atoms. And so at that temperature, basically everything is a solid. Every, every material has its atoms have slowed down to the point where they get grabbed by other atoms and the thing makes a solid. Uh, in, the, in sort of full disclosure, there is one exception to that that's known, which is the uh, helium-4, the isotope of helium it's the um, common isotope of helium um, uh, is, does not make a solid at absolute zero. It is a liquid at absolute zero. Um, and that's a result of quantum mechanics. And it's a result of what's called zero point energy, which is something I'd be happy to talk about, but it's just a more complicated thing. But in a first approximation, the atoms stop at absolute zero. And that's why everything is a solid and heat is the, is the average motion of atoms. Uh, there's a question here, do magnets work in space? Yes, absolutely, they work in space. Uh, magnets have, um, a magnetic field is something that is, um, uh, um, it is a, uh, magnetic field doesn't require a medium like air or something to be transmitted. So magnetic field, um, the, uh, and again, this is terrible because I, I now think I actually understand how this works in actual, in our actual universe. And it's, it's kind of a complicated story, but, um, um, uh, suffice it to say that the, that the way that something like magnetic field gets transmitted doesn't require us to have a medium of any kind that we kind of know about. Now you can, you can, you can block a magnet. You can, you can make, uh, you can just like, you can, you can put it something in, which is a shield that will prevent a magnetic field getting through. Um, and you can do that for electrical signals too. You can, if you put, if you, if you're inside a, a a, a, a copper box, a box that's a good conductor, um, you won't be able to get electromagnetic signals out of that box. Um, it's interesting that you can block uh, electromagnetic waves. You cannot block gravity. There is no way to block gravity. Gravity is always, you can block electrical effects, but you can't block gravitational effects. At least that's the way uh, I think. Let's see, good question. In my theory of physics, can you make a gravity shield? Uh, I think the answer is no, but I would have to think about that more carefully to know for sure. But I think the answer is, sorry, the gravity shield model of science fiction is just not going to cut it. We're not going to be able to shield gravity as we can shield electrical forces and so on. 
You've been listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast. You can view the full Q&A series on the Wolfram Research YouTube channel. For more information on Stephen's publications, live coding streams, and this podcast, visit stephenwolfram.com.